I've always enjoyed learning how things work. I was the kid growing up who had the plastic model, the one you could see through of how uh, an engine works, a V8 engine, you know, and you could look in and see and all the parts moved. In eighth grade, I took a general shop class and had the opportunity of taking apart a, a lawnmower engine and removing the cylinder head and looking in on the piston and taking off the uh, um, the side for the crankcase and getting in and seeing the crankshaft and just watching how the valves work with the camshaft. I just love learning how things work. It seems to uh, yield confidence. Like if you're driving a car and you know how the engine works and, and you can think about things moving and, and how they actually produce the power and it gives you a little bit of insight. You, you know how to make the most of uh, the things around you make the best use of them. We know that the more we know about our body chemistry, the better position we can be in to take care of our own bodies. Well, in today's passage, we find that Matthew, the author of Matthew's gospel, we find that he paints a picture for us of what God's perspective is on how things work. God's way of developing and working in this world and how the world works in light of who God is, and we'll get a chance to look at that picture together. We're in this three-part series we're calling Epiphany Plus. Last week, we looked at the story of the Magi, so that's in the first half of chapter two of Matthew's gospel. And what we'll look at this Sunday is where we're going to follow Jesus as he goes down into Egypt and then comes back up into Egypt as a child uh, um, as his parents take care of him. Our passage is Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. If you would, please take out uh, your Bible, the one you brought with you, or make use of the Bible that we provide in the rows. We'll put the words on the screen as well, um, but let's follow along with the reading of God's Word. Hear the word of God, Matthew 2, verses 13 through 23. Now when they, the Magi, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that 
Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. May God bless the reading of his word. And may God shine his favor on us as we come under his word today. Here's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at four different components in this passage. In fact, it'd be helpful to think of, of a braid, not of three strands, but of four strands, and, and how they really work together in God's way of working in this universe. The four strands are God's sovereignty, Herod's depravity, Christ's humanity, and Joseph's conformity. So we'll look at each of those in turn. First, God's sovereignty. Now, it's no secret that I'm not the biggest baseball fan, right? So if you, if you want information on who plays on what teams or what games are scheduled or all that kind of stuff, I'm, I'm probably not the person you're going to turn to. But I did grow up going to a number of Major League Baseball games out in the Bay Area. Uh, and so Giants games, A's games. And I learned enough that if, if you're the home team and you're trailing in the ninth, you want to look at who is coming up for your team, who's on deck uh, to hit. Uh, because the way things work is that it's going to come down to those individuals to make a difference in that last half of an inning. That's just how things work. This past year, this past season, it would have been really good if you had Aaron Judge on your team in the bottom of the ninth. If you looked at his slash line, yes, I had to look up what a slash line was, okay? And if you don't know what a slash line is, God bless you. <laughs> so a slash line has these three numbers in it that refer to your batting average, your on-base average, and your slugging average. And some, a number of people look at the on-base average as really the key indicator. If you can get on base, if you're going to, whether it's through a hit or a walk or if you get hit by a pitch, hopefully you don't get hit by a whole lot of pitches, but it gets you on base. And so uh, Aaron Judge, who, you know, the MVP, the best player, the uh, guy at the top of his game last year, his on-base average was 425. So if you could have one player, this is how baseball works, if you could have one player that's going to come up and, and, and somebody can count on, Aaron Judge would have been a good player to have on your team. But even at his best, in his best season, that he was still only getting on base 42.5% of the time. What if you knew you had somebody that would get on base all the time, 100% of the time, that their OBA was 1,000? That's the picture that we get about God in our passage, that you can trust God. God is sovereign. God wins. God always accomplishes what God intends to accomplish. It comes to us in two different ways. The first way is this. There's this uh, the strategic and gracious movement of characters. We can see God working at hand, the strategic and gracious movement of characters in the story that we read. And so God moved the Magi. I encourage you to go back if you didn't get a chance to uh, be present for uh, 
worship last week, go, go online, listen to the message that Joss brought us about the Magi and how God worked to, to bring these outsiders in and to, to empower them to worship uh, um, the child Jesus, uh, born King of the Jews. We find that here that, that uh, setting up our passage for, that we had today, that, that then God also uh, had the Magi leave by a different route so they wouldn't have to go back through Jerusalem. God moved the Magi. God also moved Joseph. He sent an angel of the Lord to Joseph and said, here, this is what you need to do. You need to go down into Egypt. It's going to be safer for you there. You need to go there. God then speaks again to Joseph through an angel when it was all clear for Joseph and Mary and Jesus to come back up into Israel. And then God even provided a way that Joseph would know that don't go to Bethlehem or Jerusalem, but go up to Galilee, appearing to Joseph in a dream. The sovereign God working out his plan, batting a thousand, strategically and graciously moving characters in the midst of his story. The second way we see God's uh, uh, sovereignty, the, the fingerprints of God's sovereignty, is available to us in the prophetic anticipation of future realities. How's that for a pastor's uh, line, right? What the heck is, did he just say? The prophetic anticipation of future realities. What Matthew wonderfully does for us is he, he goes back into this great narrative of God, this great arc story that God's been living out uh, as he's called a piece of people unto himself. And he relates what's happening right now to, to the happenings that God had been bringing about over the centuries as he brought his people up into Israel previously. We find in verse 15 that uh, there's a reference to Hosea 11.1. 1. Out of Egypt I will call my son. Do you know that when you find a reference in the New Testament that points back to what we call the Old Testament, it's often quite good to be able to go back to that actual place because there can be additional words right around that passage that if we were on top of our Old Testament game, we would already be thinking of those other words and, and how they connected to the passage. So when we go back to 11.1, we actually find it described this way. When Israel was a child. I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. When Israel was a child, out of Egypt. So we know that there's a story in the Old Testament that as God works out his great plan of bringing a people unto himself and opening the door eventually to all people unto himself, that God had moved and brought his people up out of Egypt during the time of Moses. And to speak of Israel is to speak not only of the individual Jacob, but of all of God's children, of the whole of the nation. And so here we have this connection now that uh, in the story of Jesus that, that the same thing that God had been doing before, God is doing even now. And we'll find out more about the different aspects to it. In verse 16 and following, we find that there's this parallel between Herod and Pharaoh, that during the time of Moses, 
that Moses, that, that um, Pharaoh had arranged for the killing of these young Hebrew children. He was going to work through the midwives, that the midwives would make sure this came about, but, but the midwives acted against Pharaoh and, and provided for it. But there was this, there was this escape, this sense of, of Moses not being harmed during this time. And here now we have the new Moses that had escaped this harm. Verse 23, we have this thing regarding Nazareth, this, this prophetic statement uh, as the prophets had declared so that was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in our next section. But all this is to say is that when we looked at Matthew's telling of the story, he goes, you want to know God being sovereign? Look at history. What God has been doing is now being fulfilled in this time. What, what God has been doing, even though those particular passages, when they were written and they were first read, people would not have linked it to the time of Jesus. But Matthew, as he's opened up the lid, drawn back the curtain, taken off the side of the crankcase, he looks in and goes, you need to see, God is at work. We know the hand of God in the movements of God in this world, and we can see them again even now. In other words, God's hand is is over humanity, that God's hand is over history. We know this, this, this sovereign provision from God that, that, that we can count on it. We know in a number of other places in the Bible that, that there's this affirmation that we can count on God. God bats a thousand. Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Great is his faithfulness. God's hand can be counted upon. Jesus, when he grew up, fully God, fully man, when he grows up, he says, in this world, you will have tribulation. Life will be hard. Bad things happen. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I bat a thousand. So our first rope in the braid is God's sovereignty. Think about this past week. What's the best thing that happened to you over the past seven days? What's the worst thing that happened to you? over the past seven days. God is sovereign over all moments in our lives. So we can have confidence that no matter what may transpire, God is in charge. And his plans will not be thwarted. No matter how bad it gets or how good it gets, we can have confidence. We can have peace. We can have hope. We can have assurance. God's plan for you cannot be thwarted. So let's go to the second break. Herod's depravity. Herod's depravity. Depravity is this word that in the theological world has taken on a specific meaning. Depravity indicates that it's not just that we sin or commit acts or 
leave something undone. It's not just a single choice of ours, but that we are sinful. And there's two aspects to this. One is that we inherit the guilt and the, sh- and the sin of Adam and Eve. That, that when that first couple goes against God and, and chooses their way over God's way, that there's something that is broken for all of humanity. That there's this condition that, that we all receive, we all inherit it. Uh, everyone born into this world inherits the same condition. We are sinful. It's not just that we make sinful choices, but that we are sinful. The other aspect of it is that every aspect of who we are is affected by our sinfulness. That's not to say we can't do good things and that people don't do acts of kindness or, or um, work toward the, the betterment of people around them. Good things do happen in this world and we can make good decisions, but, but even our best decisions can be and are affected by this underlying, this inherited brokenness in us. And so when we look upon Herod, who is the client king, the one that Rome said, you know what, you can go ahead and rule in in this area of the world. We're going to let you be the king of the Jews in this area. The client, from a Hebrew standpoint, from a Jewish standpoint, he was a poser king. And so this Herod, this Herod who is affected and infected with depravity, this king orders that the male toddlers, infants, and newborns in this specific region, that they would be murdered. Depravity. We might ask, well, why didn't God stop him? Why didn't our sovereign God, who bats a thousand, why didn't he stop Herod? I think we can be confident that in the Bible that the answer is that God is stopping Herod. That in the way things work, if we open the lid, if we take off the side of the case, if we draw back the curtains and we want to see how the thing, how the whole universe works, that God is stopping Herod. That God is stopping the work of sin in this world. He's just doing it according to his wisdom and his love and his own glory. Herod's killing of the innocents highlights the very reason why God sent Jesus into this world. In fact, truthfully, Herod is us. We needed Jesus to come into this world for Herod and for all other people, including each one of us. We carry the same brokenness that Herod carried in himself. When I was growing up with my, uh, um, and spent, spending time with my dad, we would work on the cars that we had together, and uh, um, uh, we would work together on the cars we had, and uh, one of the things we'd do is we'd work on our brakes, and maybe you still do that now, but um, I remember popping the wheels off, and whether it was a drum brake or a disc brake, we'd, we'd take apart a the brakes, and we'd look at the pad, and, and you could tell by looking at the pad uh, why it was your brakes were squeaking uh, all the time, and, and, and you could tell the condition of your brakes, and you could tell why you weren't stopping the way you did uh, when you had new brakes. You could look at those pads. You could see what the problem was. 
we can look to the Bible to help us understand what the problem is. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus helps us get this. He goes, in his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, he has a number of times where he goes, you know, you've heard it said. For instance, you've heard it said, do not murder. You shall not murder. And he goes on to say, but, but listen, I'm telling you that even when you speak out of anger towards someone, that we commit murder. That, 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 there, that there's something about the killing that's not just about going and, and, and taking a physical life, but that we can, we can actually work against each other's well-being. We can, we can commit murder. We can, just by our words that we use against another person. So our second hope in this, our, our, our second rope in this braid as how things work is Herod's depravity. We have God's sovereignty, yes, but in this world we have depravity. We have your sinfulness, my sinfulness, the sinfulness of humanity. In this world you will have tribulation. There's this place in Paul's letter to the Romans where he talks about the whole world groaning for redemption. The whole world senses this. It longs for God's uh, final solution to all these things. The work that God is doing, that God's sovereignty and His goodness and His generosity and His wisdom, that the timing would be right and that we just wait for that moment when God makes all things new. And so knowing that this is the second rope, it can yield for us understanding. It can yield for us an understanding of others, but it can also yield an understanding for ourselves, a self-awareness. that I'm a broken individual. I'm a sinful individual. There's a thing at work in me that I need to be aware of. I need Christ in my life, who is God's answer for my depravity. And so I can go forward in life. All of us can go forward in life in a, in a greater sense of humility and a commitment to perseverance in the midst of this depravity, this brokenness. It can even raise the banner for evangelism and prayer for others, that we would go toward each other in grace and hope in the power of Christ to be able to share the good news of God's answer. So we have God's sovereignty, Herod's depravity, and then we come to Christ's humanity. Christ's humanity. And here again, we have two aspects. One that's quite basic, and the other is a little bit more complicated, so let's start with the complicated one first. And it ties in to what we were saying about God's sovereignty. When we made that, uh, uh, that kind of statement that uh, pastors are known for, the prophetic anticipation of future realities, that to understand Christ's humanity, or at least what's coming about in our passage, it's to see that, that Christ, as a human, fully human, fully divine, that as, as a human, he's playing this role that, that is large. In chapter 2, verses 13 through 23, what, what Matthew retraces is the history of God's people. And he puts Jesus forward as the true Israel. So when we look at the story of God's people in the Old Testament, we find that God chooses his people and he pulls them aside. And they're going to be a light to the world, a light to the nations, and yet they keep messing up time and time again. And they keep falling short and, they, and there's consequences that come upon them because of their decisions. And so when Jesus comes into this world, he comes in as the true Israel, God's son, 
God's child sent into this world. And so we see that Matthew here is linking him uh, to these past events, the past pieces of the story. Out of Egypt I called my son. That Pharaoh and Herod had this same kind of killing of innocence that they were moving toward and taking place. And so Moses' escape, and we see Jesus' escape, and Jesus as the one in, in the way of Moses, and the, the new Moses, and that he would be called a Nazarene. So it's interesting because when Matthew makes this thing, as the prophet said, and so scholars go back and go, all right, well, what is he quoting? And we can't really find what he's quoting. So people are wondering, well, what is he quoting? And what is he taking a look at? And, and there's some understanding that people have that, well, this is a, a reference to a Nazarite vow and that Jesus is set aside. There are others that take a position. And um, uh, Dale Bruner is in this second group, but uh, that really it's a reference to like being a nobody, being a nobody. We might turn then to a passage like Isaiah 53, verse 2, where we find the words, this is hundreds of years before the time of Jesus, and a, a prophecy about the coming Messiah. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. And that Matthew says he's a nobody. He's just a human. So we see in this, in this one aspect of understanding Jesus' humanity that he comes into this world as the true Israel, the one who's tracing back that story, that God is working that story out. And the failings of the first Israel are now successes and wins and glories of the new true Israel in Jesus Christ. The more basic description of Jesus' humanity that we find in our passage is that he ends up a refugee. There is violence coming his way. He's not like he was just God in this world and had this ability to where he could just hold off all evil forces. He was a child dependent upon his mom and dad. And harm was coming his direction. And they left harm. They fled harm and went towards it. Think of families in Venezuela that are so concerned about the, the violence around them that they would leave everything and make their way north to the U.S. border. You talk about humanity and Jesus' humanity going across borders as a refugee for his safety. This third rope in the braid draws us to and ties us with Jesus. He came into this world as one of us. He knows firsthand the things we experience. He knows human pain and sorrow and disappointment and frustration and exhaustion. Even as he knows joy and fellowship and love and friendship among humans. Which then means that we, we can say this with great assurance that you are known. You are known to God. There's not one of us in this room, there's not one of us listening online, there's no one in this world that is outside of God's knowing, and, and he knows us, he knows you. Jesus sees you and knows you, and you are never lost. And because he's the true Israel, because he's one of us, and he didn't sin, 
because he's not affected by depravity. He could die in our place on the cross. A human dying for all of humanity because he was without sin. You are saved. Which brings us to the fourth rope. Joseph's conformity. One of the vehicles we had when we were growing up um, was this 1969 Ford pickup. It was a great vehicle, lots of stories around that, that truck, and we just had a blast in it. So there's this one time, I'm out with my stepbrother, we went and had done a, a project at our friend's house, and we were returning home, and uh, we're driving along, I was doing a California stop at a stop sign, and, um, uh, which don't ever do uh, rolling stops at stop signs, uh, but I was. So I get there, and I go to hit the gas to start back up, and nothing happens. So I had just enough momentum to pull off the road. I pull off the road, my stepbrother and I get out, and we, we look at it, so I know that I can push the, uh, the gas pedal down, but nothing happens. So we pop the hood, and back in that day, you could look in on an engine, and it wasn't just covered in plastic, right? You could, you could actually see stuff. You could, you could see where uh, the spark plugs were and the spark plug wires and all this kind of stuff. Well, you could look in, and you could find where the carburetor was, and you could find where the throttle line uh, connected to the carburetor. And you could find that at that one spot where the throttle line connected to the carburetor, that something was broken. So here we had a truck, and, and this truck had an engine and transmission, and, and it had a, um, an AM radio. I mean, it had the best gadgets you could have. But it came down to the missing of this little clip. So we have these three big ropes in our story. God's sovereignty, Herod's depravity, Jesus' humanity. And then we have the addition of Joseph's addition, his little addition to the braid, his conformity. If we look at the story, we find each time when God revealed his message to Joseph, Joseph said yes. Joseph listened and conformed to the will of God in those moments. God spoke and Joseph obeyed. What a great picture for us. When we open the lid, draw back the curtains, peel off the side of the case and we look in and we see God's sovereignty at work, human depravity, Christ's humanity, and we can know that our choice in the midst of all that is that we can say yes to God. God's sovereign saving plan to rescue people from the depravity necessarily goes through Jesus as the true Israel. That's those three ropes. That's the basic statement of those three ropes. God's sovereign saving plan to rescue people from their depravity necessarily goes through Jesus as the true Israel. And then Joseph shows up and shows us the way of response. Conform. Obey. Trust. This is the way things work. Again, peel back the curtain, open the lid, expose the truth. Four strands. Herod's, or God's sovereign, 
God's sovereignty, that we can be confident and at peace. We can be full of hope, fully assured, because God is sovereign in this moment, in every moment. Herod's depravity, that we know the core problem that we're up against. The problem that we're up against is not about being conservative or progressive. It's not about being rich or poor or black or white or male or female. The problem is human sinfulness, a problem that we humans by ourselves cannot overcome. We need God to move, and he did. Christ's humanity, fully divine, fully human. Jesus' humanity, he came into the world as one of us so he could die as one of us, for us. He paid the penalty for our own sins and sinful disposition so that we, through his grace, would be free not to sin. And then we come to, Jesus, to Joseph's conformity. Joseph's response to the angel's messages provides us a pattern for our response to God's word today. It's the way things work. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you are indeed the God who is in charge. And we're so thankful for the way that you lay out your scripture and you teach us and you guide us and you call us to be your children in this world. God, help us to trust you. Help us even this day to trust you and to put all of our confidence in you and your provisions. For you are the good God. And we give you praise. You know our hearts. You know what we're up against. You know where we struggle. You know how things work. May our response be to turn to you and simply say yes time and time and time again. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.